Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. President Biden admits there won't be enough votes to scrap the filibuster to codify Roe. This as he warns Americans against voting red in November, while others are skeptical about Biden's political effort. An insurance company in Texas responds to the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and it's doing the opposite of what some major corporations are doing for their workers. Is the news industry no longer following traditional journalistic practices? A former editor for USA Today warns that the industry is going off the rails. We'll tell you what he means. The U.S. Army recently dropped its requirement of a high school diploma or GED. And less than a week later, the Army reversed that decision. Why the sudden change? A new U.S. poll says we've reached an all-time low in American pride. With 4th of July coming up, we ask the question, what does it mean to be a patriot? WNBA star Brittany Griner's trial in Russia finally started today. We'll give you the details as well as the long odds she faces against criminal charges in Russia's legal system. As Republican states move to ban or restrict abortion following the momentous Supreme Court ruling, President Biden today brainstorms with Democratic governors about their next steps. But the president admits that their key objective is out of reach. And if the filibuster gets in the way, it's like voting rights. It should be we provide an exception for this. One day after making a rare call to abolish the filibuster to codify Roe, President Biden on Friday admitted that his push won't get anywhere anytime soon. Right now, we don't have the votes in the Senate to change the filibuster on, on at, the, at the moment. To codify Roe into federal law, 60 votes are needed in the Senate to overcome the filibuster. While Democrats want to scrap the supermajority rule, they don't have the 50 votes needed from their own caucus. That became apparent Thursday, when Senators Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema made clear they would not come on board. This is not over. But Democrats say they'll do more on other fronts, with Biden vowing to help women go to another state to get an abortion, and New York's governor touting her state as a possibility. We also are prepared to serve as a destination for women who'll be looking to a place like New York and other states, and my colleagues on the call, as a safe harbor. That's on top of Biden reiterating his push to make abortion an election issue. So the choice is clear. We either elect federal senators and representatives who will codify Roe, or Republicans who will elect the House and Senate who will try to ban abortions nationwide. But Katie Glenn, the state policy director of a leading pro-life group, told NTD that such a push has already met with failure and will not work on most Americans. They've already voted on the so-called Women's Health Protection Act to try to require abortion on demand, paid for by taxpayers, multiple times. It's failed in the Senate twice. It may fail in the Senate again. So we know that they are looking for something to change their fate in November when things aren't looking good, and they're trying to use this as the example. But the American people aren't going to have it. Biden said he hoped the new Congress after November will throw more support behind Roe. But that prospect remains uncertain amid speculation that Democrats could lose seats. And while many major corporations pay their workers to travel out of state for abortions, one insurance company based in Texas is doing the opposite. They're funding pro-life services. Buffer Insurance said on Facebook that it promises to pay the medical costs for employees who birth babies, provide paid time off for employees to have maternity and paternity leave, and pay for the medical costs associated with adopting a baby. The insurance company is also offering resources to other firms that want to provide similar services. The firm describes itself as a veteran-led and veteran-owned business. It's based in South Lake, Texas, just outside Dallas. After the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last week, a wide range of corporations promised to cover their employees' out-of-state abortion costs. Those include Apple, Amazon, Disney, and Microsoft. And more in health news, Vladimir Zelenko, a doctor who proposed an experimental treatment for COVID-19 in the early stages of the pandemic, died yesterday after a long battle with cancer. He was 49 years old. Zelenko rose to prominence in May 2020 when then-President Trump endorsed his treatment. 
The treatment consists of the anti-malarial medication hydroxychloroquine, the antibiotic azithromycin, and zinc sulfate. Twitter suspended the doctor's account for allegedly violating community standards on COVID misinformation. Some in the medical community refute Zelenko's treatment, while other studies show that the treatment was associated with higher survival rates among hospitalized patients. Zelenko is survived by his wife and eight children. And in election news, yesterday Republican primary candidates in Wyoming, a red stronghold, faced off in a televised debate. The main focus was on two women with rather different opinions and viewpoints, especially when it comes to former President Donald Trump. Congresswoman Liz Cheney is one of only two Republicans on the January 6th committee. She says President Trump lies to people that the 2020 election wasn't stolen. Last year, the state Republican Party censured Cheney and voted to no longer recognize her as a Republican. In Thursday's Republican primary debate in Wyoming, Cheney criticized congressional candidate Harriet Hageman, who was endorsed by Trump. Hageman says there were serious concerns about the 2020 election. I'd be interested to know whether or not my opponent, Ms. Hageman, is willing to say here tonight that the election was not stolen. She knows it wasn't stolen. Uh, I think that she can't say that it wasn't stolen because she's completely beholden to Donald Trump. President Trump's claims of a stolen election allegedly fueled the January 6th Capitol breach, which is partly what the January 6th committee is investigating. And what we have is we have a committee in Congress right now that they're focusing on something that happened thir uh, 18 months ago. They're not focusing on the issues that are important to the people in Wyoming. Hageman didn't say the 2020 election was stolen, but she called the use of ballot drop boxes, as described in the recent film 2000 Mules, a great concern. The film alleges that Democratic operatives were paid to illegally collect and drop off ballots. Hageman also says that our republic is not in danger because of President Donald J. Trump. President Trump was an excellent president for the United States of America and especially for the state of Wyoming. But Cheney doesn't agree when it comes to President Trump. According to her, people have been betrayed. Um, he consistently has said that the election was stolen when it wasn't. According to the Associated Press, Cheney has a two-to-one margin over Hageman in fundraising over the first three months of 2022. Also taking part in the debate were a state senator, a retired U.S. Army colonel, and a businesswoman. The debate was closed to the public for security reasons and to prevent people from disrupting the event. Wyoming primary elections are on August 16th. Congress members Elise Stefanik and Rick Crawford are introducing a bill to protect U.S. farmlands and food supply chains from foreign buyers. During the last decade, Chinese firms bought U.S. agriculture companies and farmlands totaling millions of acres. The bill would blacklist China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea, barring them from purchasing U.S. agriculture companies and agricultural biotechnology. The proposed bill would also add the Secretary of Agriculture to the U.S. Committee on Foreign Investment. The Secretary would report and address national security risks from foreign purchases to the committee. And a former editor of USA Today is speaking out against the politicization of today's news industry. In an interview with the Epoch Times, he said the leaders of Gannett and USA Today need to return to older values. Here are the details. There's, there's a screenshot of David Mastio worked as an opinion editor at USA Today until March. He recently revealed that the media outlet demoted him in August last year for tweeting that only women could get pregnant. He tells the Epoch Times what he thinks has gone wrong with USA Today's journalism practices. I think what's going wrong with reporting at USA Today is that we don't talk to sources that we disagree with or quote people that the reporter disagrees with. And I think it's really important in, in news stories to, to have both sides and to have people that you talk to who challenge your, your views. Mastio explains that USA Today and its parent company, Gannett, became increasingly liberal because the company hired young reporters to replace more experienced and expensive journalists. And these reporters, fresh out of college, come from an overwhelmingly liberal environment. They went one small step at a time, um, and they found themselves with a staff that was too overwhelmingly political, too, too liberal, and they didn't have the spine to demand that, they, that these young reporters adapt to USA Today's values. So they changed USA Today to make it more like their, their report. 
The former editor says he thinks journalism and big companies like Gannett are going off the rails. People who, who think that, that journalism is about the facts and, and being honest with our readers need to stand up for the values that made journalism important and influential and is, are increasingly being abandoned by our, uh, by our industry. The top leaders of, of Gannett and USA Today need to take control of their newsrooms and return to the older, the older values or they're going to pay a price. Mastio has now joined a new online video news outlet called StraightArrowNews.com. He says he only chose to speak out now because he had a family to support when he was still at USA Today. And over to the Army. In an apparent attempt to increase recruitment, the Army recently dropped its requirement of a high school diploma or GED. But less than a week later, the Army reversed that policy. NTD's Jason Perry tells us why. The Army has reportedly reached only about 40% of its recruiting goals, with just three months left in the fiscal year. And in an effort to increase these numbers, the Army dropped its requirement for a high school diploma or GED to join. But less than a week later, the Army reversed course and is now requiring a high school diploma or GED. An Army recruiting station confirmed the changes to NTD. An official told the Army Times that the decision had more to do with ensuring that we set the recruits up for success rather than a perception of a lowered standard to join. Recruits who were able to join without a high school diploma or GED needed to score in the top half of those taking the Armed Forces Qualification Test. And they will still need to earn a GED during their first contract to be able to re-enlist. The Army Times was not able to verify how many recruits without high school diplomas or GEDs were able to join during the few days the waiver was in effect. Jason Perry, NTD News. We're now in a phase in U.S. history where many find patriotism and America's founding fathers offensive. On top of that, a new Gallup poll says the number of people who feel proud to be American has reached an all-time low. Given that we're now just days away from Independence Day, our reporter explored a question. What does it mean to be a patriot? The United States was one of the first modern democracies and is often called the nation with the most liberties and the most freedom on Earth. All of that started when the Founding Fathers signed the Declaration of Independence, which separated the 13 colonies from Great Britain on July 4, 1776. It is safe to say that the Founding Fathers were real patriots. Nowadays, the term patriot might not always sound positive to people. Tim Barton is the president of Wall Builders, an organization dedicated to presenting America's forgotten history. He says being a patriot is about having a strong sense of ethics and doing the right thing. Right, when we look at patriotism, what we're really saying is there needs to be people with a moral compass that care enough about other people, that care enough about what is right to stand up against oppression and say no. And this is where today we call them patriots, right? At the time, the king didn't view them as patriots, but we recognize they're patriots because their moral compass led them to do what was true, what was right, what was just, what was honorable, to throw off oppression. And they did it for the cause and the sake of those around them. He added that a society needs people who can discern good from evil, or else it will fall into tyranny. This week, multiple schools in Cleveland removed the name of Thomas Jefferson, one of the founding fathers from schools, mostly because he owned slaves. Barton says Jefferson wasn't perfect, but his name shouldn't be removed. Because all that means is we should cancel everybody always, all the time, and then you will have no heroes. You will have nobody that not only you honor, but nobody that you can aspire to be. Nobody that you're looking and saying, man, look what they accomplished. We want to be like them, because all you will do is find the imperfections and cancel them. He added that we as a nation have to find a common set of values and principles in order for the country to keep being great. Coming up, President Biden says states that would ban abortion medications are extreme and misguided. NTD's Arlene Richards looks into whether those states are being overcautious. And what's a July 4th celebration without fireworks? We hear from the family behind the explosive shows at the Olympics, the Super Bowl, and the Macy's Fireworks Spectacular. That and more after the break.
In recent remarks following the Supreme Court's abortion decision, President Joe Biden said laws that block access to abortion medications are not based on evidence. But what do we know about the abortion pill? And how safe is it for women? NTD's Arlene Richards investigates. And just a warning, some viewers may find the following footage disturbing. My administration will also protect a woman's access to medications that are approved by the Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, like contraception, which is essential for preventative health care, mifeprestone, which the FDA approved 20 years ago to safely end early pregnancies and is commonly used to treat miscarriages. President Joe Biden is taking a tough stance against states that ban abortion medications. He said state laws that control women's access to abortion medications are not based on evidence. The American Medical Association, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, wrote to me and Vice President Harris stressing that these laws are not based on, are not based on evidence and asking us to act to protect access to care. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists states on its website that medication abortion is a safe and effective method of providing an abortion, but some experts disagree. It's the standard procedure. I spoke to Tessa Longbonds, a senior research associate at the Charlotte Lozier Institute. She says according to a study, women who took abortion medications had a much greater risk of an emergency room visit than women who had surgical abortions. That study was published in the peer-reviewed journal Health Services Research and Managerial Epidemiology in 2021. And in fact, the rate of emergency room visits increased over the course of the study period pretty dramatically for both chemical and surgical abortion women, but particularly women who had undergone chemical abortions. It increased by 500 percent between 2002 and 2015. The FDA used to restrict access to abortion pills like mifepristone, requiring it to be taken in the presence of certain medical providers, but that's no longer the case. Longbond said during the pandemic, the abortion industry put pressure on the FDA and began sending the pill through the mail. Then in 2021, the FDA approved mail distribution, meaning women no longer needed to consult with prescribers in person to get them. Longbond said in order to effectively abort, women must complete a two-step process, which involves taking a second medication after the mifepristone. Here's what a woman can expect to experience during the process. It involves a lot of cramping and bleeding. It's not a fast process. It can take several hours to a few days, and uh, a woman who is undergoing a chemical abortion is really just staying at home, um, in her bathroom, cramping and bleeding and expelling the unborn baby and the rest of the pregnancy tissue into the toilet. NTD reached out to the AMA and the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, but didn't hear back before broadcast time. Arlene Richards, NTD News, New York. And turning now to Texas, where the suspected driver involved in the smuggling attempt that left over 50 people dead was allegedly under the influence of methamphetamine. That's according to U.S. lawmaker Henry Cuellar, who cited information from law enforcement. Here are the details. On Thursday, 45-year-old suspect Homer Ozamarano Jr. appeared in a federal court in San Antonio where human trafficking charges against him were read. If convicted, Zamorano was told he faces a maximum sentence of life in prison or even the death penalty. According to filed documents, San Antonio police officers on Monday found him hiding in brush near the abandoned cargo trailer. Officials said the vehicle showed no signs of water supplies or working air conditioning. Mexican officials said Zamorano had tried to pass himself off as one of the survivors. On Monday, bodies were found stacked inside the sweltering hot truck as temperatures soared over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. Other victims were found in nearby brush. More than 50 migrants lost their lives, making it the deadliest such trafficking incident on record in the United States. Gerardo Olivares was still waiting in Mexico for news on his son, who was one of the passengers. Others in Central America are also waiting to hear and praying that their loved ones are still alive. And turning now to the issue of minimum wage hikes, which have taken place today across multiple states. They aim to make sure the lowest paid workers are keeping up with the cost of living. But is it really that simple? And TD's Colin Fredrickson has more. 
On Friday, the minimum wage rose in multiple states across the U.S. Statewide increases have been implemented in Connecticut, Nevada, and Oregon, and in many cities in California, Illinois, and Maryland. Emeryville, California has the highest minimum among them at $17.68. It's the same as, say, uh, an excise tax on, on cigarettes, right? Governments impose those in order to reduce the amount of cigarettes consumed. And governments impose minimum wages, and they say it's to help labor. But what it's really doing is it's a price floor on labor, so it's reducing the amount of labor. John Dunham is the president of John Dunham & Associates, an economic research firm. Dunham has done a lot of research on the minimum wage and says, in the end, everyone pays for it. We found that almost 60% of the cost of a minimum wage ends up being paid for by the consumer. Uh, about 30 percent, a little under 30 percent, comes from people who lose their jobs. Some people think the minimum wage could be higher. You can't have a business without employees, and employees, if they're getting underpaid, they can't perform. Moshe Parad is the president of 26 Motors, which sells pre-owned cars in New York. Even though Parad believes in paying employees well, he's concerned about inflation. The problem is the cost of Everything became so expensive, the cost of having employees, the cost of product. The inflation rate in the U.S. is currently at 8.6 percent, around a 40-year high. I would do away with the minimum wage entirely and allow workers and employers to negotiate uh, what's best. Robert Wright is a senior faculty fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. Wright says more employers won't have to let their workers go this way, effectively reducing their wages to zero. The federal minimum wage is currently $7.25 an hour and has stayed that way for the past 13 years. Holland Fredrickson, NTD News. Are you getting ready for the 4th of July weekend? Your wallet better be getting ready too. Prices for cookout items like hamburgers and hot dogs have gone up a lot. This leaves many Americans with tough decisions on how they'll celebrate the holiday. Jillian Kitchener reports. Inflation is the party favor no one wants at their 4th of July celebration. But it's here, and summer cookouts have become more expensive. Prices for cookout items such as hamburgers, hot dogs, baked beans, and lemonade climbed 17% compared to a year ago, according to the American Farm Bureau Federation. The grocery bill for two people has gone up, I'll probably say about 2 to $300 for the month. And that has some Americans feeling less than festive. I'm not afraid to spend money, but it's gotten to the point where it is kind of ridiculous. And also the lack of availability for some things is um, higher as well. Global food prices began rising in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic and worsened after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Ground beef soared to an all-time high earlier this year, and beer prices have jumped 25 percent since 2021. The price of chicken wings has also climbed 38 percent since February year over year. Like most Americans, Ankia Novakova says she's brainstorming on ways to cut household costs. My grocery bill used to be about like 250, 300, and now it's skyrocketed to over 400 dollars. Um, part of that's on me, though, and I include going out to eat also as part of my grocery bill. Still, she's planning a road trip over the holiday weekend despite high gasoline prices, which on average sit at $4.86 per gallon. Now to kick off the long weekend, we have a holiday special for the upcoming Independence Day. In a special interview, NTD's Phil Zoe speaks with one of the biggest family names in the fireworks industry, the Souza's. They're responsible for the fireworks show at the Olympics, the Super Bowl, and of course, the Macy's Fireworks Spectacular. Here's a story of the American dream. The Olympics, the Super Bowl, the Macy's 4th of July fireworks spectacular. You name it, they've probably done it. We're talking about the Souza family behind Pyro Spectaculars by Souza. They've been performing the biggest fireworks show across the globe for over 100 years. It was founded by my great-grandfather, uh, Manuel de Souza the turn of the century in the San Francisco Bay Area, fulfilling the American dream and came here and they had some knowledge of it from back in, we're, we're from, uh, 
from the Azor Islands in Portugal. Spanning five generations, the family business is now being led by James Souza, president of Pyro Spectaculars. When it all goes up in the air and you hear the oohs and ahs, then you kind of get hooked to it and then the rest becomes history. So. But it hasn't been easy. Business was down a whopping 90% during the pandemic. Since then, the Sousas have been fighting to make a comeback. We're very happy and, and blessed that uh, we've recovered from the, the pandemic. And now we're back to, to pre-pandemic levels, getting ready to stage uh, over 400 shows on this 4th of July weekend from sea to shining sea. So how much work does it take to plan 400 shows for one weekend? From 400 permits and insurance certificates to 400 crews that can range anywhere from size of four to 50, uh, like in New York. York has even 60 crew members working on five barges there. So it's a, it's a year's worth of effort um, importing uh, fireworks from all over the world. But the expenses have gone way up. Things have changed. You know, starting the turn of the year, insurance has gone up, and now the cost of containers, if you can even get them with the supply shortages, have gone normal cost of 10000 per per container to now 30 35 and that's a, a COD, by the way. So if we want to get the containers out of Long Beach, we got to pay up front to get them. No matter the cost, Souza says the tradition must continue. Right now, the show must go on whatever it takes to do. If we've got to pay more for trucks or pay more for fuel that wasn't factored in in the, in the pricing in January and February, the show must go on and we'll sort that out at the end. I still think it'll be okay. And one reason is the dedicated staff at Pyro Spectaculars. I do it as a passion, not for money. Let me tell you, we're not going to get rich. Uh, doing fireworks. Antonio Bestard has been a licensed pyrotechnician for over 30 years, but that's something he does only on weekends and holidays. I, I feel I practice law in one of the most exciting counties in the United States, being in Los Angeles. Bestard has been a criminal defense attorney for over 40 years. He was in court the day we spoke, working on two murder cases and another for arson. Bestard recalls recruiting people from all walks of life, just to make sure the show is a success. So some of them were lawyers, uh, judges, DAs, uh, and firemen, and bailiffs, uh, sheriffs, and police officers that would join me. And they were the best workers because they knew how to control a crowd. They knew how important safety was. The Souzas will be working on the Macy's 4th of July fireworks spectacular coming up this Monday in New York City. So now we're celebrating our freedom and I think it's important for all of us to stop the bickering and stop what's going on on both sides and just say, hey, here we are, we're called the United States of America and come together as family and friends and celebrate what we have as a blessing that the world envies our freedom. Phil Zoe, NTD News, New York. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. And coming up, a San Francisco principal was removed from her position after allegedly using a racial slur. The school's community is now divided on the issue. And in the WNBA, Brittany Griner's trial in Russia finally started today. NTD's Dave Martin has the details of the day's events, as well as the long odds she faces against criminal charges in Russia's legal system. That and more coming up on NTD News. Longtime elementary school principal was removed after complaints that she said a racial slur while teaching students not to use it. The removal has sparked division among the school's community, leading many to speak out. NTD's Jason Blair has the story. A principal at a San Francisco elementary school was removed from her position after demonstrating a racial slur while teaching her students not to use it. Principal Carol Fong did this after hearing the slur being used during a playground fight and then called students and staff in for a special meeting. At a San Francisco school board meeting earlier this week, parents and members of the community came to comment on the situation. But you need to look at the context of what she said, how she said it, and you need to look at the intent. The word she used is so deplorable, it's heinous, it's evil. It is unacceptable. 
Principal Fang is teaching our kids not to use those words, not to use those words to say it to somebody else. They have to separate between using it in teaching kids and using it to yell at other people. The incident happened in January this year. It then sparked complaints from one of the student's parents, leading to Fong's removal. Nearly 29,000 people have joined a letter-writing campaign in support of Fong, while representatives from the African-American community were calling for a zero-tolerance policy. Forty percent of the students are from non-English-speaking families. Fong said later in a letter, although the intention was to teach my students that saying the N-word was inappropriate, in hindsight, I should not have used the full word. She has made public and private apologies since the incident. The district's African-American Advisory Council said in a letter to district leadership in regards to Fong, after being called out on the use of the slur and educated on the impact and history of the word, Principal Fong willfully continued to use the slur several more times when speaking to parents, staff, and even her supervisor. Other parents mentioned in a letter that San Francisco Unified School District Superintendent Vincent Matthews' call to remove Fong came at a surprise as none of the complaining parties had requested her removal. Superintendent Matthews has since retired as of July 1st. Jason Blair, NTD News, San Francisco. And staying in California, some lawmakers are seeking to make California what they call a transgender sanctuary state. A bill that would prevent other states from prosecuting transgender youth and families who moved to California is making its way through the legislature. But one detransitioner spoke out against the bill. Here's the story. A teenage girl expressed regret in her gender journey during a public safety committee hearing at the state capitol. I was medically transitioned from ages 13 to 16. My parents took me to a therapist who affirmed my male identity, and the therapist did not care about causality or encouraged me to learn to be comfortable in my body. Chloe is a detransitioner from the Central Valley. Her testimony comes as the committee passed Senator Scott Wiener's controversial Senate Bill 107. Proponents of the bill say it would provide refuge for trans youth, their parents, and those who advocate for and provide gender-affirming health care for minors. But Chloe said the gender-affirming care she experienced had harmed her. The therapist she saw brushed off concerns about the efficacy of hormones, puberty blockers, and surgeries. My parents were given the threat of suicide as a reason to move me forward in my transition. My endocrinologist, after two to three appointments, put me on puberty blockers and injectable testosterone. Chloe said at age 15, she attended a top surgery class with dozens of other girls her age or younger. None of us were going to be men. We were fleeing from the uncomfortable feeling of becoming women. I was unknowingly physically cutting off my true self from my body, irreversibly and painfully. She said she went through with the surgery, but did not fully understand the choice she made at the time. Despite having therapists and attending the top surgery class, I really didn't understand all the ramifications of any of the medical decisions I was making. I wasn't capable of understanding, and it was downplayed consistently. My parents, on the other hand, were pressured to continue my so-called gender journey with a suicide threat. Chloe says she now regrets her decisions and is experiencing negative side effects from the procedures. I will never be able to breastfeed a child. I have blood clots in my urine. I am unable to fully empty my bladder. I do not yet know if I am capable of carrying a child to full term. In fact, even the doctors who put me on puberty blockers and testosterone do not know. Chloe urged the committee to reject the bill and put safeguards in place so that painful experiences like hers are not repeated. Meanwhile, Wiener said SB 107 is intended to protect families and trans youth and medical professionals from being prosecuted in other states. These parents who are doing, just trying to do right by their kids and accepting their kids for who they are and supporting them are being told you're a criminal for doing that. It's disgusting, it's despicable, and California should have no part of that. According to the bill's text, SB 107 would prohibit law enforcement agencies from arresting or extraditing parents charged in other states for child abuse or other crimes related to transitioning procedures. Texas, for example, is cracking down on the use of puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones on minors, and in some cases, gender surgery on minors.
In the end, SB 107 passed in a 5-2 vote. It's now headed to the Committee on Appropriations. Now we turn to sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with today's top stories. WNBA star Brittany Griner's trial in Russia started today. She was arrested more than four months ago at a Moscow airport for allegedly possessing cannabis oil. The 31-year-old could face up to 10 years in prison if convicted. Griner appeared at the courtroom wearing handcuffs in a Jimi Hendrix shirt. Two witnesses were questioned by the prosecution, including an airport customs official. According to state news agency RIA Novosti, the trial was then adjourned when two other witnesses failed to appear. In Russia, less than 1% of criminal cases end in acquittals, and acquittals can be overturned. In May, the U.S. State Department reclassified her case as wrongfully detained, which means they are actively trying to negotiate her release. Meanwhile, the recent prisoner swap that saw Marine veteran Trevor Reed exchanged for a Russian pilot convicted of drug trafficking has given her supporters hope. Griner's next trial session is scheduled for July 7th. In NBA news, free agency officially started Thursday night and teams have already spent more than a billion dollars to lock up the league's best players. Two-time reigning MVP Nikola Jokic led the way, securing the biggest contract in NBA history at five years and $264 million to stay in Denver. Three-time All-Star Bradley Beal will stay in Washington after signing a five-year, $251 million deal. Meanwhile, stars Carl Anthony Towns, Devin Booker, and John Morant each agreed to four-year deals to stay in place. Towns and Booker's deals are worth $224 million apiece, while Morant is guaranteed at least $193 million. The NBA as a whole pocketed nearly $9 billion in revenue last season, their most ever, and contracts early on have reflected that. The big deals, though, were still overshadowed by the news of Kevin Durant's trade request yesterday to get out of Brooklyn. Durant's exit could also signal Kyrie Irving's departure and a complete rebuild of the Nets. In college athletics, Pac-12 powers UCLA and USC were notified last night that their application to join the Big Ten was approved. The schools will compete in a new 16-team Big Ten conference starting in 2024. The move is expected to significantly weaken the Pac-12 as TV revenue for college football is the main driver of overall revenue and hence conference expansion. Meanwhile, the Big Ten now stretches essentially from New York to Los Angeles while gaining one of the premier football programs in USC. The Pac-12 paid out just under $20 million a year to its members during the last fiscal year, lowest among the Power Five conferences. Meanwhile, the Big Ten paid out more than $45 million apiece. The Pac-12 released a statement saying they were surprised and disappointed by the departures. USC and UCLA had been associated with the Pac-12 and previous iterations of the conference going back nearly 100 years. USC joined Cal, Oregon, Oregon State, Stanford, Washington, and Washington State back in 1922 in what was then known as the Pacific Coast Conference. UCLA joined six years later. That's all for your sports news today. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Dave. And coming up, 25 years since Hong Kong was handed back to China, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says Beijing has failed to keep its promise. And in France, Paris's largest airport is hit by strikes over pay and working conditions, causing disruptions to holidaymakers. Find out more after the short break. It's 25 years since Hong Kong was handed back to China under an agreement that the city would have freedoms not enjoyed under the communist rule on China's mainland. But since then, those freedoms are being chipped away, with Beijing most recently imposing a draconian, vaguely defined law on Hong Kong. Western governments have criticized Beijing, with Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying Britain won't give up on Hong Kong. Here's NTD's Jane Wero with more. The UK and China 25 years ago agreed to maintain Hong Kong's unique freedoms that are not enjoyed in mainland China under an agreement called One Country, Two Systems. But Beijing has increasingly drawn Hong Kong into its orbit. 
Marking 25 years since the handover, Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping swore in the new leader of Hong Kong, John Lee. Lee, an ex-police officer and former security chief, oversaw the violent suppression of the Hong Kong protests in 2019. Like Carrie Lam, he's seen as a puppet to the party. Former British diplomat and author of The China Coup says it highlights the diminishing freedoms in Hong Kong. The Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping is visiting Hong Kong for the 25th anniversary of the Hong Kong handover. What will the Chinese regime get from his visit? What they will get is different from what they will want. What they will get is a reminder to the world that they have crushed the freedom of expression, the rule of law, on which the prosperity and vitality of Hong Kong depended for so long. They will have to read comments from around the world of the ill effect of their increasing the dictatorial policies towards Hong Kong. And they will read that they have killed the golden goose that um, served the world and the Chinese economy so well for so long. How do you think the people of Hong Kong will react to Xi Jinping's visit? Because their freedom of expression has been crushed increasingly over the last five years, they will not dare to express their true feelings. But remember that back in 2019, over a third of the adult population of Hong Kong marched through the streets on a single day to defend their freedom of expression, their rule of law, and the beginnings, their aspirations for democracy. And now they watch, they will watch as Xi Jinping installs as their ruler in Hong Kong, a man who spent his life in the police force and then as the security boss of Hong Kong. You, I think it's not difficult to imagine what their feelings will be. He says what's happened in Hong Kong has killed any support in Taiwan for a similar one country, two systems rule. The Taiwan leader said that freedom in Hong Kong has vanished and China has failed to live up to its promise. Boris Johnson said Beijing has been failing to comply with its obligations. Many Hong Kong citizens have fled to the UK, but they've kept the spirit of Hong Kong alive. Jane Werrell, NTD News, London. And Communist leader Xi Jinping is headed back to mainland China from Hong Kong. During his visit, he said the city had risen from the ashes. But few others seem to tell the same story. Chinese Communist Party leader Xi Jinping left Hong Kong on Friday, concluding a rare visit to the global financial hub. While there, he swore in the city's new leader, John Lee. Hong Kong authorities deployed a massive security force during the trip, blocking roads and airspace. This is the first year that the anniversary of its handover to Beijing wasn't accompanied by protests, criticism, or homegrown expressions of dissent. China's Xi said the city had overcome its challenges and had risen from the ashes. But a number of Hong Kongers said they felt there was little cause for celebration. I think in the past 20 years, so many major events have happened in Hong Kong, and the city has changed and we cannot go back. We can't regain that sense of happiness. Even with Xi coming, he cannot bring Hong Kong any happiness and bring about a proper sense of occasion. I think in my mind that, uh, and I think for many in Hong Kong, this is a city that is no longer recognizable. Uh, even five years ago, you uh, would expect that uh, July 1st marks actually a day of protest. Separately, a former law professor of the University of Hong Kong said Beijing has become the city's second government. I mean, basically, Hong Kong was one of the freest, uh, most open societies in Asia, even ranked as such for years. Uh, and so that's where the crackdown is occurring. So almost all the ingredients of an open society are under threat. The universities, the secondary schools, uh, you know, the broadcast media and so on. U.S. Congress member French Hill from Arkansas also chimed in, calling what the Chinese Communist Party has done in Hong Kong a shame. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party turned their back on their 50-year transition commitment in a treaty uh, committed to by both Great Britain and uh, 
and uh, the uh, Chinese government. And that's a shame. And I think it's another sign that China has turned their back on international law, international norms. Addressing Beijing's human rights violations in Hong Kong, Hill talked about the arrest of the city's bishop, Joseph Zen. It's just another uh, nail in the coffin of one of the most open, transparent, effective, free market economies in the world to one that is uh, authoritarian, surveillance culture, a national security uh, law and set of rules that can't be really adjudicated in a fair court of law. He added that Beijing's actions put international personnel at risk if they choose to stay in the jurisdiction. And in France, flights from Charles de Gaulle Airport in Paris faced disruptions as airport workers held a strike and protested to demand salary hikes to keep up with inflation. Ground staff are emboldened by booming demand for air travel and staff shortages caused in part by the COVID-19 pandemic. We hear more from NTD's Eddie Aitken. Airport workers went on strike at Paris's main international airport on Friday forcing the cancellation of flights and bringing more disruption to early summer travel. Scores of ground staff at Charles de Gaulle Airport protested in front of one terminal to demand a big pay rise to cushion the pain of high inflation. One of them is Loris Foreman, who handles flights for major airlines such as Qatar Airways, Emirates and Air Canada. We are poor workers. We, the middle class, suffer. He said he now has to scour supermarkets for promotions on food items and never fills his car's fuel tank to the top. Foreman's union demands a general wage increase of over £250 per month for all staff. He acknowledges a strike is a bother for all travellers, but added that he had no choice. Yes, we know that we are taking passengers hostage, but we need to make our voice heard, and that the only way to do that is with a strike blocking the airport, and if the airport is really blocked, it could work. Airport operator ADP said it expected 100 flights to be cancelled, 50 incoming and 50 departing on Friday at Charles de Gaulle Airport. Queues built up inside the terminals as some passengers sought to make alternative arrangements and others arrived early, fearing disruption. I haven't looked into it, but I don't know the reasons. It's not normal that a strike leads to the blockade of the whole airport. Even the tourists who are not French, who have not asked for this, they just want to get back home. The cabin crew for Ryanair in Spain also walked out for a three-day strike on Thursday. And rival low-cost carrier EasyJet's cabin crew set to strike for nine consecutive strikes. There were no major delays and no cancellations on Friday, the first day of EasyJet strike. Airports across Europe are seeing strike action as the summer holidays approach, and airports such as London, Amsterdam, Rome and Frankfurt have had to cope with flight cancellations and long queues. Workers' demands come as airlines are struggling to recruit staff after having cut headcount massively during the pandemic. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. Coming up, three new fairground rides and pedestrian plazas are being built at New York's legendary Coney Island. They're expected to open to the public by the middle of the summer. Got the details in just a moment. legendary Coney Island has entertained generations of Americans. Now it's getting a revamp. Three new fairground rides are being built at the beachfront attraction. Work is underway to build three new rides and pedestrian plazas on five acres along the boardwalk. Coney Island being this great, uh, rich place uh, with so much legacy and emotions and memories for all, not just New Yorkers, but Americans. You know, it's really an iconic place. We really started you know, the, re the rebirth of uh, Coney Island with Luna Park in 2010. Tony's Express Roller Coaster and Letty's Treasure Log Flume are two of the new rides and will pay homage to Coney Island's iconic 19th century attractions, the Switchback Railway and the Chutes. It's also paying homage to our history as a family. Uh, the names of both rides are actually after my grandparents, Tony's uh, short for Antonio, my grandfather, and Letty uh, short for Letizia, my grandmother. 
The new roller coaster will bend and curve around the log flume at more than 40 miles per hour on over 1,000 feet of track. The log flume will have 12 boats seating up to 6 guests, lifting riders up to 40 feet in the air, providing a panoramic view of Coney Island's shoreline before plunging down at over 35 miles per hour for a big splash. We've been blessed to be in the amusement park industry and overall entertainment for more than five generations. Uh, so for us to be here uh, and to be really associated with the revitalization and, uh, and really kind of rebirth of Coney is extremely exciting and a great honor. The hope is that the new rides and plazas will be open to the public by the middle of the summer. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. And lastly, the first moments of a life for a baby giraffe were captured on video by Chile's Metropolitan Park Zoo. According to keepers, the proud mom gave birth to a calf on June 19th. It came in at over 200 pounds and clocked in at six and a half feet tall. Shortly after birth, the baby tried unsuccessfully to take its first steps, but weeks on it is striding confidently on all fours. According to the Natural Resources Defense Council, giraffes are under threat. The council reports there are only 68,000 giraffes left in the wild, largely because of habitat loss. When fully grown, the new giraffe could reach a height of over 16 feet and weigh as much as two tons. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.